Uh, it's amazing how much we know about the Old Testament, perhaps because we've heard these great stories of men and women of faith like we read about in Hebrews 11 who just uh, demonstrate their trust in God. Uh, and yet there are certainly, because of the vast amount of materials that we read in Genesis to Malachi, passages and events and details that are easy for us to overlook. And any time that you try to survey a body of literature as large as the Old Testament, uh, which covers several thousand years, uh, the books of history that we're in right now alone cover about 800 years of history. Uh, there's so much there to talk about. And so it's our desire in this class to summarize what these books contain and more than anything, praise God and show how God is faithful and loyal and true and how he has always been faithful to his people despite their struggle. Last week, we looked at Joshua and Judges and Ruth and we showed how God was faithful as Israel uh, walked into the land of promise, defeat Jericho, inherit a beautiful land that God had been promising uh, his sojourning people back since the days of Abraham. And yet, despite their success, uh, there's a lot of rebellion and sinfulness. Several times in Judges, we read that expression, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result of that, uh, God's people are in turmoil. And they began to demand a king. Uh, they want a king for two reasons. They want a king because the nations around them have a king. And they also demand a king because they've seen how wicked and rebellious uh, Eli's sons are. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas had uh, rebelled against God themselves and were abusing what it meant to be a priest of God. And so the people saw that and they wanted something different. And even though God had been warning them, even back in Deuteronomy 17, about what would happen if they had a king they still demand a king. And so in the midst of those books of history, uh, we highlighted that there are several books of history that cover really from the end of Moses giving the law and Joshua, by God's grace, leading the people of Israel into the land of promise all the way through the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, the division of that uh, tribal land into two kingdoms, the ten northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes of Judah, and how eventually God uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians to defeat his people, to take them away and to exile at least those who weren't uh, destroyed, and how they are allowed to return and to rebuild in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in the midst of that, we read about Ruth and Esther, which, uh, interestingly, both of those books, although short, tell us about God's faithfulness, how in the period of Judges you have God preserving through Ruth, the Moabitess, his promise to bless his people. Uh, she ends up, and the, at the end of Ruth, we see the genealogy of David. Uh, then in Esther, we read about how God, uh, even in a foreign land under a Persian king, uh, maintained his faithfulness. And uh, in both of those accounts, even though we're familiar with the narrative, those make great vacation Bible schools, uh, we really see that God is the hero and that God is faithful. And so it's very difficult for us to summarize all of this content uh, in a short amount of time. But again, we have two goals uh, in today's class. We want to look simply at what these books are about. And so even though Samuel was one book in the Hebrew Bible, Kings was one book, Chronicles was one book, uh, we're going to look at all six of these books and try to outline each of them with two points. 
which is very hard for a preacher. You know, you need three points in a poem, but we're going to keep it to two points, and we're also going to highlight God's faithfulness in each of these books. And so here it is in one slide, and we'll try to break this down as far as an outline as we go. But the trajectory of God's faithfulness is really the theme here. And, of course, Samuel begins with that beautiful story of uh, Samuel's birth, Hannah's prayer, uh, the way that God uh, gives Israel a king. In 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 through 9, we see that demand for a king and Samuel warning uh, God's people as he talks with God and God uh, talks about the fact that their demand for a king represents the fact that he had been rejected by his people. And so he gives them a king. And again, there's so much about 1 Samuel that we could add to that, but I've tried to sort of put this in one sentence, and those references at the end of each of these are, of course, from the book that's highlighted on that particular line. So in Samuel, God gives his people a human king. They already have a king. God is their king. But he gives them what they ask for. And so we began to see how that unfolds. In 2 Samuel, uh, David reigns. That's really a description of his time uh, where he will uh, expand the borders of that territory. He captures Jerusalem and makes that his capital. Uh, he puts down rebellion. Sadly, several of those are from within his own family. Uh, and of course, we read there about his tragic sin with Bathsheba. And so 2 Samuel is really telling us about the uh, kingship of David. Now, the reason I highlighted 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 8 through 17 is because that's when Nathan the prophet was sent by God to tell David that, he is, that his kingdom would be established forever. And it's one of those passages, 2 Samuel 7, that serves, I think, as a foundation for the rest of the Old Testament. Here's the kingship of David, the, the son of David. And, of course, that language, as we read it in the New Testament, really echoes what it is that 2 Samuel 7 draws our attention to. And so if we're going to highlight the faithfulness of God... I think it's good to note that even when David fails, even when the people selfishly demand a king, even when there's rebellion and apostasy, even when the Assyrians and the Babylonians defeat God's people, God's still faithful. Uh, He keeps his promises. He preserves that remnant. Uh, He blesses them. So when we get to 1 Kings, that's Solomon. Uh, In 1 Kings 3, God Uh, gives Solomon the opportunity to ask for a blessing. Solomon asks for wisdom. Uh, The first 16 verses of 1 Kings 11, what I've highlighted there, uh, tell the tragic story, however, of how Solomon forgot the blesser and made uh, political alliances through marriage. I think perhaps Solomon learned that from his father, uh, how he allows those foreign wives to turn his heart away from God. And Solomon's struggle really represents the struggle of all of Israel. Uh, There's this struggle with idolatry, uh, a struggle with the fact that we read back in Judges and Joshua how God's people did not drive out the Canaanites like they were supposed to. And so as we read all of these books together, we see that there's a cause for the idolatry and the rebellion that we encounter in these books. And so 2 Kings really... Uh, the first half of 2 Kings finishes the story of Solomon and the united kingdom uh, of Israel, the 12 tribes. But of course we know that Solomon's young advisors gave him poor advice and the kingdom is divided. 
Tragically, the ten northern tribes never again find faithfulness. They construct golden calves. They're led into apostasy. Their kings and queen have one queen, Athaliah. They're all rebellious. They all lead Israel down a road of destruction. Judah lasts longer, about 150 years longer, because she does have faithful kings like Hezekiah and Josiah who bring reform and try to establish uh, God's reign. Not that it needs to be established, but recall his reign in Judah. And uh, in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes through and destroys the temple. So Chronicles uh, is retrospectively looking back at basically the story of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. Uh, Traditionally, it's thought that Ezra, or perhaps someone living about 100 years after the fall of Jerusalem, was telling the story again for the purpose of helping God's people to remember God's faithfulness. In the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles, uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles, are the last books in that canon, in that collection of books. And they, I think, really highlight the fact that although there's a lot of tragic rebellion and sin, uh, for example, Chronicles doesn't tell the story of David and Bathsheba that we read in 2 Samuel. And it's not that the chronicler, the inspired writer here, is trying to hide the bad in Israel's history. I think as God's people are in exile and they're struggling and they're experiencing uh, the heartache of that uh, consequence of their action, they need to be reminded that God's still faithful, that God's the reason they're still alive. And 1 Chronicles 17 is one of those passages that highlights, just in sum, the way that God had been faithful even when Jerusalem was destroyed, even when God's people had been carted off. And this slide's going to be maybe hard to see. I wasn't sure how easy we could, and it's kind of uh, the pixels there are a little funny. Uh, But I I found this chart, and and not that we're going to quiz on this or anything, but this is just highlighting the life of David and what 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and Kings talk about with the life of David. And if you'll notice, there's a lot of bad there because we know that David struggles. And as a result of his sin, his family struggles. That's one of the classic things we could say about David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he's penitent. We know, of course, Psalm 51. Uh, There's a lot of things in David's life that are very difficult, that impact his family and impact the people of God. But in general, Chronicles talks about the good David did. And it's not because David was perfect. We know better than that. I don't know if it's this way in Israel now. I haven't been there in about 20 years. But the tomb of David, when I was there, there was a sarcophagus in that area. I don't know, maybe 10 feet long. And I was confused. I read 1 Samuel 17, and I thought, man, this must be Goliath's tomb. You know, I don't remember reading about David being this big. And I asked the tour guide, why is this sarcophagus so big? And he said, King David was larger than life. And I think that's the way a lot of people remember David. The chronicler isn't trying to make a hero out of David. He's just highlighting the fact that God blessed David, that David had success because of God's grace, because of God's blessing. And the same with Solomon. And so I like reading Kings and Chronicles in parallel, but as we do that, let's understand that while both of these records are inspired and they are both useful as 2, Samuel, or 2 Timothy 3.16 says about Scripture, it's inspired and profitable. Uh, there is a bit of a different perspective. And I think when we read these together, 
we see, uh, again, the good in knowing the whole story, but also the good in knowing God's story and the way that God guides this and blesses his people and gives them uh, opportunities to be restored and opportunities to prosper. And so let's think now as we sort of walk through these, and again, each of these books could be its own quarterly study. Uh, The reason we're doing this is just to think big picture about what these books have to offer. Let's go to 1 Samuel. And uh, with each of these books, I'm using uh, the book by Bill Arnold that I've uh, recommended to you, uh, titled Encountering the Old Testament. These outlines are coming from that book. And one of the reasons I like that little resource is because it gives two-point outlines for every book in the Old Testament. And so even though I filled in around the outline some, I just want you to know where uh, this outline originated. And so in the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, you do have a transition because we're coming out of Judges. Uh, Judges sadly reminds us that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here you have uh, Hannah's prayer, her co-wife, Peninnah, her obstinate husband, Elkanah. Am I not better to you than ten sons? What an insensitive thing to say. Uh, But God blesses Hannah, he blesses Samuel, and we see through that this process through which God selects Saul um, of the tribe of Benjamin, son of Kish, to be Israel's first human king. It doesn't take us long to see Saul as a strong military hero. In the history of our own country, uh, we have uh, people who've been elected to the presidency because of their military service. We were at Eisenhower's library in Abilene, Kansas a few weeks ago and learned a little bit about that. Saul was very much uh, a man who was known for his success, for his military might, uh, but we also learned something about his heart, his uh, nature with regard to being a bit too self-reliant, making rash promises, failing to carry out what what it was that God desired for him. And so even though in 1 Samuel 16 we have David anointed as the next king of Israel, it's not until the end of this book that that transition happens when in 1 Samuel 31 Saul is killed in his battle with the Philistines. Throughout these books you have this ironic struggle with the Philistines, with the Amalekites. These kings are trying to remember God, but they are obviously uh, hungry for their own power, thirsty for blood. And then you see the way that God raises up prophets. Uh, in 1 Kings, it's Elijah. In 2 Kings, it's Elisha. That's one of the things that marks a transition between those two books, the way that God used these prophets. And I might just mention that uh, if you like reading about miracles, uh, this is an unscientific survey, right? But I think that it's interesting that the most miraculous period in Scripture is clearly the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And maybe second to that, you could say it's Moses in the wilderness. Uh, But Elijah and Elisha's ministry is full of miraculous activity. And I think it's because God was working through these men, again, to remind his people and their rebellion and their captivity that he's still present, that he still speaks, that he still desires that relationship. And so we, of course, have uh, that battle with Goliath, uh, the way that David has to overcome his own brother, at least his oldest brother, Eliab, that's the first giant. Then he has to defeat Goliath. Then he has to get around Saul. And we see that constant rivalry and the way that involves 
Saul's son, Ishbosheth, who at the beginning of 2 Samuel is at war with David. His uh, daughter, Michal, who married David after his success. And of course, uh, Mephibosheth uh, with Jonathan uh, down the road. So uh, we've got this constant struggle with characters. And I, I think that as you read narrative, Old Testament history, it's good to read it at three levels. And again, this is just my own speculation. But I think that sometimes the first level of the story is just where we get these details. And it's easy to talk about Saul and Samuel and David and, and focus on the story, but there's also a middle level that involves God's people. And just seeing the way that the decisions of a ruler or a prophet will impact the Israelites or how the Philistines or the Amalekites or the Moabites or these other people groups are impacted because of these decisions. But then the top level would clearly be, what's God doing? He's the hero of the narrative. He's still present. He's still active. He's still faithful. And so uh, it's tempting as we read through these books to pay attention to Saul and maybe do a leadership class based on Saul's failures and David's success. That's a great class. That's a great idea. But as we do that, let's also remember that it's impacting the people group, Israel. And even more than that, it's teaching us something about God, that he's faithful. And one question that I think as we read through these books that we must remember, uh, one statement maybe would be a better thing here, God is king. God is sovereign. God's the one who's faithful. God still reigns. And so as these kings fail, God never fails. As God's people fail, he never fails. And that's a beautiful truth that we read throughout Scripture. So King David comes to power. The first four chapters of 2 Samuel show us how he struggles in that initial uh, transition, how he respects the Lord's anointed. We see that at the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, how Ishbosheth, the son of, of Saul, uh, some great baby names in uh, these books, by the way, but uh, how the son of Saul believes he should be the next king, how he's eventually killed. Uh, there's some pretty graphic descriptions in these battles, of course. And the last major portion then of this book, as we highlighted earlier, just tells the story of King David. And uh, I want to just highlight, I mentioned this passage earlier, I think it's important that we do this, that as David comes to power, it's made very clear, and perhaps retrospectively this is important not only for us, but for the Israelites, as they might want to uh, worship David. But note that David benefits from God's provision. That in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, as David speaks, or hears the Lord speak, this is the longest speech God makes since the wilderness, since Moses. So if you're looking for God's words directly spoken to a character, 2 Samuel 7 is probably the key passage in all six books we're surveying today. So starting in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says, I took you, speaking to David, from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you. Does that sound like Joshua? I will be with you? Well, this is retrospective. 
I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint you a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan was the mouthpiece through which these words were spoken. We often only look at the bad news Nathan delivered uh, when David was confronted due to his sin with Bathsheba. The prophets also spoke good news. And this is a, uh, an interesting text because clearly Solomon is in view in verse 14 as one who would need reproof and correction. But in the big picture, again, these are the verses that New Testament-inspired writers pick up on to talk about Jesus being the son of David as the genealogy of Matthew begins by highlighting the role that Abraham and Jesus play in that genealogy. So David was a great king, but God is a great God. And the, the chronicler later will give us the fuller perspective on that, but that truth's evident even in Second Samuel. So then, as we move to First Kings, the two big points here uh, in First Kings one one through eleven forty three, we have the united monarchy of Israel that God established. Saul was the first king, then David, then his son Solomon, and of course, as we've already highlighted in those first eleven chapters, you have the powerful contrast between God's power and His provision the way that he allows Solomon to profit. His wisdom is spoken of throughout the world. Uh, But Solomon, maybe like his father David, not only trusted in in horses and chariots uh, more than the sovereign God of heaven, but he um, was moved by lust and political power, and it cost him his kingdom, at least physically. We know God's made the promise to David that's going to live on in Jesus. Uh, And he's followed poor counsel. And so even though Solomon was the wisest and most blessed in terms of finances king, human king, Israel ever saw, he was also perhaps the biggest failure. Uh, Because the kingdom splits, we see in addition to the Canaanite influence that's continued since the days of Judges, uh, we see Solomon's Um, relationships impact these people. And there's an interesting way that kings repetitively uh, highlighted here, 1 Kings 11, 41 through 43. This is uh, sometimes referred to as the regal formula. Uh, We see it frequently where there's just a summary uh, about the acts of a particular king. Uh, 1 Kings 11, 42. Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. That repetitive formula not only is a succinct way of summarizing the period that a particular king reigned, 
it just highlights the transitive nature and, frankly, the failure of these human kings who typically are assassinated or who die in war or die in apostasy. And it just all goes to highlight, I think intentionally, contrasting the faithfulness and the steady provision of God on the one hand with this continuous turnover and struggle of these human kings on the other hand. Now, if you read these books in light of Deuteronomy 17, before they even get to Canaan, God says through Moses, there's going to come a time when you're going to have a king. He's going to bring your boys into war. He's going to take your girls into his harem. He's going to increase your taxes. He's going to trust in horses and chariots. And the best way for the king to protect his heart and turn away from that, um, that selfish way of living would be to copy the law of Moses by hand, to be his own scribe. Because copying the law would be a great way for him to remember God's word. And so it's just amazing the way that we'll find parallels between these six books of history that talk about the kingship of Saul and David and Solomon and the divided kingdom and God's warning, God's protection, God's faithfulness, God's goodness that we'll see, Lord willing, next week in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, when after all the dust settles... God still uses pagan kings like Cyrus and Darius to allow his people to return and rebuild. And they're still going to struggle, but God's still faithful. And he raises up prophets. I've already mentioned Elijah in 1 Kings, Elisha in 2 Kings. Again, that's one of the differences because note that the divided kingdom that begins back in 1 Kings 12, 1, that story continues all the way through 2 Kings 17, 41. And I would just highlight, I think, that that continuity reminds us. These were one book in the Hebrew Bible. It's perhaps the case that they're broken up simply because of scroll size, although that's speculative and we don't really know for sure uh, what happened there. But God's people continue to struggle. and They continue to fail. And the divided kingdom comes to an end when in 722 B.C., the Assyrians, God uses this invading army The capital of Assyria is Nineveh, right? So we know about Jonah and Nahum and other prophets who uh, confront the Assyrians, who confront these pagan nations. And it's interesting, right? When you read these books in light of what Isaiah 40 and 42 say with regard to Israel being a light to the nations, that these messages that the prophets of God are bringing have a ripple effect. They're not just for God's covenant people. They are for all people. And we see that, of course, even in the Pentateuch as we looked at the uh, Egyptians and the other foreigners who come out of Egypt and are treated with love and kindness by the Israelites who were told, you were slaves. Remember what that was like. Treat these people who are not uh, of you by race with love and respect. And so after 722 B.C., Judah, the southern tribes, they stand alone. And there are some moments where you think, okay, uh, they're going to survive this. Uh, that's where the temple is. Uh, there, are, there are moments like with Hezekiah's prayer uh, where we think, okay, uh, the apostasy could come to an end. But that pattern of rebellion, much like what we saw in Judges, where there's this continuous cycle of rebellion and a cry for help, and God answers that cry when the people repent, and then they fall right back into that same kind of behavior 
God's faithful, but he also is just. And we see consequences for rebellion. And so as God had warned uh, Jerusalem and the people of Israel, this land, you will inherit this land if you're faithful. You'll stay in this land if you're faithful. The temple will remain if you're faithful. And uh, as a result of their failure, that's part of what Paul will deal with later in Romans 9 through 11, that question, is God faithful when Israel was destroyed? And I think Paul redefines Israel and says that Israel isn't about uh, your race or being officially a part of national Israel. It's that God made a conditional promise. He, by his grace, preserved his people. And if you're sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham by faith, then God's promise is still true. It's still as true today as it was when he spoke those words in Genesis 12 or in Genesis 15. So that's the survey. From the beginning of Saul all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem and God's people being carried into captivity. And so Second uh, Chronicles, for example, ends with that language of Ezra returning from exile, which is the same way Ezra begins. So these books, starting with Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, show us the whole story. These nine books of the Old Testament tell us the story of how Israel got to the land of Canaan and left the land of Canaan. Uh, now Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther tell the story of how she returns. And again, all of that can be traced back to God's faithfulness. He keeps his word. He allows us to make real choices that have real consequences. Free wills always existed, uh, including before sin entered the world, or it couldn't have entered the world because Adam and Eve made the choice to eat the fruit. So uh, that's part of what we see here uh, in these books as well. So after you've read Kings and Chronicle, or Samuel and Kings, you're going to find Chronicles to be very repetitive. But I think, again, Chronicles demonstrates God's faithfulness. The first nine chapters of First Chronicles are really tough. They're really difficult to read because it's all genealogy. It's the nightmare memory verse chapter, uh, section of the Old Testament. And, but there's a purpose where the inspired writer here takes us all the way back to the period of the patriarchs and takes us all the way forward to families in Jerusalem after the exile. And I think what he's showing is that God has been faithful to his people since the very beginning. And so when you read Chronicles, try to imagine a group of people who have been in prison their whole life. They've been in exile for as long as they've lived. And it's easy for them, even if they've started to return now, in the days of Ezra, as Second Chronicles ends to rebuild, we know they weep when the temple begins to re- be rebuilt because it doesn't seem unzerubable and Jeshua the priest and those other leaders to have the same glory that it had back in the days of Solomon. So this is a very difficult time for these people who want to think about the good old days when God was great and we were in Canaan and everything was as it should be. And I think these books... First and Second Chronicles are a way of saying, God's still here. God, God's at work now. These leading families of Jerusalem are as blessed now as those people of old were blessed. And so as we then move past the genealogies, we get into retelling the story of David and First Chronicles and Solomon and the other kings and queen of the divided kingdom in Second Chronicles, 
And again, it's a way for us to see that despite their failures and the struggle of Israel, God blessed his people. And it's not because he uh, ignores sin. And it's not because he doesn't care about obedience. It would be a very dangerous thing to read these books and to conclude that God's going to save us regardless of what we do. Uh, It's because God is faithful and people can be faithful. And so I think that's why we've got to be very careful, even in the period of the judges, not to dismiss everyone as sinners. I know we all sin, but as people who could not possibly be redeemed by God, uh, there was a faithful remnant even then. And so as we move, I think that was the five-minute warning. Let me look, make sure. Ah, good. Uh, As we move through 1 Chronicles, that's the story. There's not much said about Saul in 1 Chronicles. Uh, We don't revisit every event in 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, Again, I don't think the writer of Chronicles is trying to avoid talking about David and Bathsheba. Uh, It's my thought that he assumes we know Samuel and Kings. Uh, I would view these books as being written again, maybe a hundred years later, as God's people are now returning. Uh, But this is a way, again, inspired way of reminding us that God has been here all along, that he's faithful. And so in 2 Chronicles, we have uh, questions that come up sometimes about the temple. Uh, We have questions that come up about Solomon. I don't think 2 Chronicles necessarily answers all of those questions. But what 2 Chronicles does answer, again, this is going to sound redundant, is that God's faithful. In the first nine chapters of 2 Chronicles, Solomon's reign is summarized, uh, even though 1 Kings 11 makes it clear he's a womanizer, for lack of a better word, and he allows his heart to be turned away to idolatry because he tries to mix something that shouldn't be compromised with paganism that he probably learned Uh, from the fact that the Canaanites are still around. It goes back to the failure of the days of Joshua. Um, God still uses Solomon to do good. And we see that summarized well in these chapters. And even during that difficult, divided period, um, it would be easy to dismiss the divided kingdom as a total loss, maybe with the exception, again, of Josiah, Hezekiah. But uh, 2 Chronicles shows that We can mess up everything in every way imaginable, and God, his will is going to be accomplished. It it may be that there are very few that enter into the land of Canaan, as Jesus warned in Matthew 7. Uh, It may be that there's a lot of blood and a lot of struggle. And as we read uh, Kings and and Samuel and Kings, that's certainly true. But I, I think the perspective of Chronicles is just to say, Whew, that was rough, but God is good. Those kings failed, but God be praised for his faithfulness. Jerusalem was a mess after Nebuchadnezzar got through, but we're back, and God's going to bless us as we rebuild. He's going to protect us. He's going to keep his promise. And so as we come to the end of Second Chronicles, we see reference there, chapter 36. Those last two verses... Uh, verses 22 and 23 of Second Chronicles 36. Um, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. And that's basically how Ezra begins. And so, can we trace? Sometimes it's difficult to know exactly where. But can we retrospectively see God's providence and blessings, even in this difficult time of history? And if we can see that in this very difficult and bloody and tumultuous time in Israel's history, can we, even in the midst of our own struggle, see God's hand, see God's faithfulness? I believe we can. Some days we don't want to hear that. Some days it feels impossible. I've been there. I understand that. But I think Chronicles in particular calls us back to that reality that we're going to see spelled out even more clearly as the temple is restored, as God's people um, celebrate restoration. Um, But we'll also learn that restoration isn't static, that it's a movement, and that it's something we have to desire in every generation, or we can fall right back into that same trap. Look forward to continuing that next week, and I appreciate you all very, very much.